I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey there, this is Christian Swain from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Rock and Roll Archaeology? What's that you say? We are a podcast network dedicated to digging deep into the amazing music that exploded out of the second half of the 20th century. We believe the music, culture, and technology wove together, and it is an important story of history as, say, the Italian Renaissance or the Impressionists of Paris. We have six shows, all with a different side of this incredible time. Rock Talk with myself and host Peter Ferrioli. Real Rock, and that's R-E-E-L, hosted by Andy King. Vinyl Snob with the legendary Dave Whitaker. Rock and Roll Librarian with the headmistress herself, Shelley Sorensen. Deeper Digs in Rock, where I interview famous rock and roll personalities and the people who scribed the times and events. And finally, our full telling of the history of rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, which started it all. Find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So let's get back to Between the Sheets of Rock and Roll with Shanty and Lynx and Muses and Stuff. Me my love I don't know. 
Hello. Hello. Hello and welcome to another episode of Muses and Stuff. The podcast. All about the dog. <laughs> the experience. <laughs> Actually, Muses and Stuff. The experience. That's what we should do this summer. Oh, yeah. I'm getting ideas. Yes. Yes. Okay. Hi, Play everyone. Um, welcome. Yeah. To another episode. And it's my turn to present. Yes. Last week, Lynx gave us an amazing episode as per usual. And now time, now time, it's my time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now is the time. Now is the time. I'm excited for this one. This one's a special one. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. So there's so many books in front of you. There's right so now. many books in front of me. There's three books in front of me. I only knew about this one. So that was the one I got originally. I first picked up this book called Becoming Almost Famous: My Back Pages in Music Writing and Life by Ben Fong Torres. Yeah. And so Ben Fong Torres is one of the first like earliest writers at Rolling Stone magazine and you may know him the of the portrayal of him in Almost Famous as this is Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone. <laughs> But exactly. um, I wanted to know more about this guy. And I wanted to know more about him because, of course, considering us fashioning ourselves rock and roll journalists, yes. I want to know more about rock and roll journalists. So I originally picked up the book Becoming Almost Famous. And then as I was, I was starting to read the introduction, because this book is a collection of his interviews, ah. which are amazing, I found I was going... but. Where did he come from? Yeah. What's the uh, What's upbringing? His story? What's the story? And then I found out that he does have one of those books. Thank goodness. And it's called, yeah, it's amazing. The Rice Room, Growing Up Chinese American. Oh, From cool. number two son to rock and roll. <laughs> amazing. So in his Chinese family, he was number two son, which is you. where that comes from. But I will certainly get into that. Now, before we get into his life story, if you did ever want to pick up like a backstage pass to 20 years of rock and roll, Not Fade Away, that's his other book, you it, like it's a great book to kind of have lying around because you can just get into it a little bit at a time. You can just read little stories at a time. It's not the like it's just a nice, easy kind of casual read. But I would like to draw your attention to oh this chapter. It's an article that he wrote, groupies of the 80s still grabbing for the stars. And the picture is the GTOs, girls together. Yes. So Miss P and our girls um, are here. So Ben was very aware of the groupie phenomenon and at the end of the episode. So stick with us. Okay. I will bring you this article. Amazing. I will let, I'll, I'll read you some of this article. Fantastic. Okay. Let's hear Ben's story first. Hey, so not only do we get an amazing glimpse into his life growing up in the 60s and 70s, but we get to learn about how Rolling Stone magazine got started, who was working there, when, where the offices were located, and all that yeah. stuff. Um, and, you know, there, I think that there is a part of me that, like, does think that rock journalists and anybody that works in media, like, either has wanted to be a musician themselves at one point for sure or do have that level of like groupie dumb fandom in them that of course makes them pursue this yeah um 
Now, Ben just celebrated a birthday at the beginning of January, and he's still active today online. Um, David Felton wrote the intro to his book, Becoming Almost Famous, and um, about starting at the magazine in 1969, David said, ironically, he hasn't changed much since then. He's still a rock and roll journalist. He's gotten better, brighter, funnier, and like the rest of us relics, more built for comfort than speed. And actually, Ben uh, dedicated that book to uh, to Elvis for starting it all. Aww. It was his birthday this month as um, well. So many amazing so birthdays many. lately. Yeah. Um, and then mine's coming up at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. So the what and how of how his parents came to America from China is like an episode in itself. And you're fat all, if you are at all interested in like history and that kind of stuff and like immigration and how people came to America and like what that was like in the 1940s. It's a great read. Like my brother picked up the book while we were home for the holidays. And then he was telling my dad all about it, about how like um, Ben's parents came to meet and to marry. So they thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, the origin of the Fong Torres name is super interesting. In order to get granted access into the United States, Ben's father needed a non-Chinese sounding name. So for $1,200, because he wanted to leave China, he bought a birth certificate bearing a Filipino name of Ricardo Torres because the Philippines were a colony of the United States and he'd have a better chance of getting in that way. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So his father came to the United States alone, um, was working in restaurants, making money and sending it home. So that was a big thing for people from China. If they've left, it's to send the money home. You have this duty. And they always kept those traditional Chinese values with them, even when Ben and his family was growing up, that like you have to take care of your parents. So he had been in the u.s for like a decent amount of time and he wanted a wife but he wanted a woman from china okay so he wanted a chinese wife he didn't want to like search for an american woman and so what they did was he let it be known to the town that he was looking for a woman to go to the united states and the women at that time as well did want that that was an opportunity for them like that would have been yeah great case scenario um so the town was on the lookout for a woman for him and um one day uh ben's mother was approached by somebody to see if she'd like to go to america to live and marry a chinese man so um he had professional photos taken of himself and he sent them back. So she got to see them and she was like, yeah, um, the families met in China and they learned about him and what he was doing in the U.S. And they figured it would be mutually beneficial for all of the families. And that's how it was she came to yeah go to the United States. Now, the ordeal that she went through to get to America is, again, like a whole thing in of itself. Um, because of paperwork issues, she was stalled for five months. She had to take a false name 
Jeez. Yeah, to get in and had to lie that she was visiting her father who was already in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, when she got there, she went to an immigration an immigration station on Angel Island. Um, and here they were all examined, interrogated, um, and sent to a women's dormitory where they she stayed there for six weeks. Wow, it's a long time. So Ben wrote, at Angel Island, you were guilty until proven innocent. Hmm. Some women had been there for two to three years. Oh my God. So while she was in there, Ben's father wrote to her and he had food shipped to her. And even though she hadn't met him yet, she felt very loved. So they were happy to finally meet and she thought he was handsome. And even though she was 19 and he was 37, she didn't see him as old. And like it was a good match. It was a good fit. And so they married and settled in Oakland. I believe it's somewhere near San Francisco. Yeah. Um, So they lived in Chinatown in Oakland. Uh, It's really interesting to read and learn about how the Chinese people were treated back then, which will come as no shock to anyone as it was not good. So Chinese couldn't buy, own, or lease property outside of Chinatown in the 1940s. So Ben's father opened up a business called the New Eastern Cafe because he was a really, really good cook and he wanted to have his own business. The hyphenated Fung Torres name came when they were about to have their first child and Ben's father was unsure about what to do with the Torres name. So the immigration offices, they would become suspicious if he would have dropped the Torres name, but he did want to include their real name. So they ended up having five children between the years of 1941 and 1949, and they all ended up taking the Fong Torres name. My goodness. They were busy. (laughs) They were busy. (laughs) And you know what? This name, I think, ended up benefiting Ben in the long run because it was so unusual. And it was like... It does. It flows nicely, too. There's something to it. Yeah. So the three boys were named Jean Hung, Jean Ha, and Jean Geet for Chinese heroes. The girls were Wei Ha, Wei Sang, and the Wei meaning wit and wisdom. Ha meant do, and Sang meant goddess. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. But they all had American names. Yes. So the way they got their American names were that um, the parents looked through a baby book. And because their father liked the way the S was shaped and looked, they named the girls Sarah and Shirley. Okay. And for the boys, they just tapped the B in the baby book and came up with Barry, Barry. who's the oldest son, Benjamin, and Burton. Okay. Um, Ben says that he... His sister Sarah and his brother Barry were born into an America at war. There was Pearl Harbor, the Japanese internment camp, and so on. Hmm. Yeah. So Ben was born third, um, but second son, on January 7th, 1945. So he's 73 now. Okay. Um, his name on paper was spelled Benjamin, B-E-N-J-A-M-A-N. Fong okay. Torres. Okay. A typo. Yeah. <laughs> so the dynamic of the children and siblings is very interesting. His parents, even though we're in America, would always consider themselves to be Chinese. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to learn about, you know, that experience. Ben says, I sat happily in the middle of my family with an older sister, older brother, younger sister, and younger brother. I was perfectly positioned. I wasn't expected to be the most responsible, and I wouldn't be spoiled or be the last in line for handed down clothes. 
Hmm. So he was the performer of the family, which he says wasn't exactly a Chinese trait. Interesting. He even liked singing in front of people and being in talent shows. You're right. He wanted to be uh, yeah, in yeah. the spotlight. So the children were expected to work at their father's restaurant and get good grades. There was a lot of pressure on all of them. Um, but like I said, you know, there was that also extra pressure to take care of the family because they were still sending it back to China. When Ben was 10 in 1955, he loved baseball, but music was becoming his real passion. And this is where I'm going to read to you the first time, um, the first real quote of the book music was becoming my real passion on the radio i'd been hearing an endless stream of ballads aimed at adults why don't you believe me by Joni james a guy is a guy by doris day lady of spain by eddie fisher um and i confess I loved it. I was not aware of rhythm and blues, whose artists paved the way for rock and roll. I knew R&B and country tunes only as they were covered by pop artists. Your cheat and heart for me was Joni James's, not Hank Williams, and Shaboom was by the crew cuts and not by the chords. But it was only when Elvis Presley came along that I took note of how important the singer was. Elvis knocked me out, and I didn't care that it was mostly girls who were going crazy. Watching him on stage show, the variety half-hour hosted by by the Dorsey Brothers Saturday nights in the early 1956 and later on the Ed Sullivan show, I was struck not only by his electric energy, but by his carefree sense of humor in the face of television's establishment. He had nerve and it pulsated through his every snarl and swivel. I bought every record he put out and every magazine that had him on the cover. Ben's a groupie. All right. <laughs> I had a feeling. So... For sure. I knew I wanted to cover him. Okay. So he said that his mother heard that Elvis and Little Richard were the cause of juvenile delinquency. Of course. And it was called rock and roll that was the threat to society. So his sister listened to a lot of her music at her friend's house and Ben listened to it late at night. In secret. Mm Mm-hmm. The first radio he got was a transistor radio, which he says was barely lo-fi, but I didn't care. He also said, when rock and roll took off and and 45 RPM records came into vogue, we were left behind. We couldn't afford a new phonograph player. Barry's decided to make one himself. And he like totally messed it up. (laughs) Yeah. So when Ben was 12, just like his brother, he left the family home to go to a different town to open up another restaurant with his father. So his father had done this before, left town to go open up a restaurant based on like a business venture that somebody had told him would be a good idea. So he went to Texas in the summer of 1957, which was his first opportunity to get out of Chinatown. So his sister was like, good for you. You're so lucky that you get to do this, that you get to get out, like see it as a blessing. In the fall, he began school there, and for the first time, he was at a school where he was one of the only Chinese kids in attendance. One in 433 kids, in his words, had yellow skin. However, the other students accepted him just as another new kid in town. He says at the time that the coolest sounds were being made by Elvis and Jerry Lee and Buddy Holly, but also by Little Richard and Chuck Berry. The kids would bop to Laverne Baker one minute and to cowboys like Johnny Cash or Marty Robbins the next. Rock and roll was an equalizer, and for me it was more... Um, more of a way to have fun or to feel like part of the crowd. It was a way to feel Americanized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was in it was in Texas that Ben really worked on his accent, and he tried to be more American. American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So Texas proved to be like a life-altering, kind of course-altering experience for him because away from Chinatown, he wasn't consistently hearing about how he needed to become a doctor or a lawyer or, as he says, worst-case scenario, an engineer. (laughs) In Texas, Ben could fantasize about rock and roll, um, about rock and roll stardom, about being on the radio, about drawing cartoons and making jokes. It was around this time that he also found a typewriter. So using the typewriter and a rubber stamp kit, he began putting together a little personal magazine with stories, parodies, and things he had written. Amazing. And then he started passing around the little magazine. He's a zine. As you would call it. To waitresses at the restaurant. (laughs) So Ben had a zine. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. See, everyone, just go out there and do it yourself. You know, DIY. So, I mean, Rolling Stone was DIY back in the day. For sure. We'll get there. Imagine going back to yourself, though, like as a child and seeing yourself as what you used to do back then. And it's like, I think back to what I used to do and like, like I used to public speak. Like I was a valedictorian. I did win an English award. I did win an entrepreneurial award. And now I go like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, it's all coming. That, yeah. Even though that was maybe lost after a little while, it's like kind of a nice way to look back at who you were as a child and be like, reclaim your inner yeah, child. Yeah, for sure. So, so you never really lose it. It's always there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we can let the everyday pressures of things try to kind of deter you from that. For sure. Um, so they left Texas when Ben was 12 because his father ended up being kind of cheated on the restaurant business uh, and he didn't see yeah. much of the profits. That's too bad. Um, at 14 years old, Ben became the student body president. He was also working at a re- another restaurant with his brother, assisting a newsstand vendor at the or with um, at the Oakland Post Office and going to school. So he was doing a lot, a lot of time. Work. Yeah. In 1959, they moved out of Chinatown. And um, so now we're sort of moving into his high school experience. Great. So of that, he says, um, I did not socialize exclusively with Asians at Westlake, and I was not about to do that at Oakland High. As I got to know the school, I got the feeling that there were no closed doors on campus. You just had to knock. Anyone could try out for anything, and as the semesters rolled on, more and more ethnic minorities began to appear as byliners in the paper, as actors in school plays, as student body officers. I began writing for the school paper and, in ROTC, found a partner in comedy... Oh, like, uh, yeah, he found a friend. Yeah. Yeah. So he said the best music on the air at that point was the rhythm and blues artist, Ray Charles, the Drifters, Ike and Tina Turner. Yeah. Yeah. And he was listening to a top 40 station. Cool. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he kind of opened up in high school a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. He ended up getting a job at um, an Oakland radio station as a weekend assistant to one of the newscasters. So he'd go on Sundays, um, oh, sorry, on Saturday mornings to read feeds from the wire services and relaying college football scores to the newscasters. Hmm. Yeah. Um, At Oakland High, he wrote a humor column for the newspaper. He ran the student assemblies, so he really enjoyed public speaking. And he would set up a sound system in the cafeteria and be the DJ. Yeah, he ended up getting hired to be the DJ for school dances. And uh, he said at this point he couldn't get enough attention. And at this point he was working at his father's restaurant until 10 or 11 at night and then would go home to study. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 
I guess when you're that young, you have all that energy. Just imagining <laughs> doing it now, it's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> never. Um, so his sister was really into music at this time, his older sister, but she was definitely like hiding it from from the family. But it became common ground for the two of them. Um, his older sister was into jazz and hung out with artists, much to their parents' dismay. Aww. In his senior year of high school, Ben was also writing a column for a neighborhood newspaper for the Oakland Times. Ben did express interest in wanting to play music, but he says that his family could never afford any instruments, so he banged on some bongos, which, not surprising, didn't turn into a musical career. Yeah. He said that there weren't very many Asian role models in the early 60s, and on television, the Chinese people that he saw were like, yeah. D- disturbing yeah. P- portrayals. Oh, God, yeah. And representation. Um, he has some wonderful times in the book when he talks about, like, the women that he's loved and relationships that he's been in because it was, like, mid-60s. Yeah. Super cool stuff. And so his first love was in the summer of 1964. And I won't get into the details. Definitely read the book. There's so many amazing details that you would want to read about. But um, for, like, their first date, they went to see a matinee of A Hard Day's Night. Oh, great first date. Imagine. Great. In the fall of his junior year at SF State, he joined the Golden Gator, the Campus Daily, and the KRTG radio station. He says the format of the radio station, only accessible to students, was a schizoid mix of top 40, pop, jazz, and folk. So he auditioned and uh, was on air from 6.30 to 8.30 Wednesday mornings. Okay. So, you know, you got to start with those time slots. (laughs) Go start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Even though the radio station didn't have an audience, he didn't care. He was able to make mistakes, work through them. And he says, besides, as long as I could hear myself, I had an audience. Aw, Ben. (laughs) That's how we started. I can hear you as long as we hear ourselves. And that's what we always said. As long as we have a couple, maybe a couple people that like it, then. It's worth doing. Mm Mm-hmm. As long as you're happy. As long as you're happy. By January 1965, he was getting bigger assignments at the Gator and was writing about uh, one story per day. That year, he became city editor and received a grant of $80 a month. He was still working at the Bamboo Hut on weekends. And um, at the Gator, he had a weekly column that was called Whatever's Right. He'd use this as an opportunity to talk about anything that bothered him. The biggest thing being the draft. Of course. Yeah. By sp- yeah, by spring of 1965, President Johnson had sent the first U.S. troops into Vietnam. So he says, actually, you know, it's interesting because like our previous episode talking about Pep Benatar, her first husband yeah. being in Vietnam, like the timelines kind of match up. He says, in short, Uncle Sam wanted us. Sometimes it seemed that the long finger he was shooting out of those famous posters was aimed directly at me and my scrawny neck. Mm. Here I was having just begun my senior year when, two days before Halloween, the local board of the Army Service System, the one based in Oakland, ordered me to report for a physical examination. No. Yeah. Uh, and it's I can't wild. Even imagine. I can't even imagine how terrifying that must have been back then. I would have two brothers in fit, yeah, two brothers and a boyfriend in tip-top condition to go serve in a war right yeah. now. They'd all be gone. And they would, yeah. And they would. Yeah. Oh, wow. A few weeks later, he got the unfortunate news that he was, in fact, healthy enough to serve in the army. He says that it didn't matter that, as the Gators faculty 
the advisor had informed the draft board I had made more than normal progress towards my degree, that I had a painted a B average, worked on the campus radio station, and was a city editor of the newspaper, and was recognized by administrators, faculty, and students as one of the top 10 seniors. So they had a note sent on behalf of him saying those things. Yeah, save him. But no. No. So Ben said that, well, just hang tight. Okay. Hang tight. So Ben said that over the summer of 1965, pop music had grown up. Dylan had recorded like Rolling Stone and folk rock came into the musical lexicon. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read you something. Hold tight. Um, Where did I say that I was going to read? Okay. So... He says that the Rolling Stones were big at the time, too. Um, They were talking for a lot of young people through Mick Jagger's refrain about not getting no satisfaction. Along with the artful Simon and Garfunkel and the Laurel Canyon lullaby singers, the Mamas and the Papas, they were changing the sound of the Top 40 radio, widening its scope and appeal. Now, KRTG became Top 40 with jingles, time checks, and zany contests. We, the disc jockeys, were encouraged to come across as somewhere between enthusiastic and overly so. (laughs) I started sounding like what radio people call a puker, a jock who talks as if he's about to throw up. I think it's like this. <laughs> yeah, for that's, sure. That's like So that's gallop. when that like radio DJ voice came about. You're listening to Kaya. You're listening to music <laughs> podcast. Oh my god, could you imagine if we did every episode like that? Oh my god. So, at this point, Ben was no longer on the morning broadcast and was on air between 4 and 10 p.m., much more reasonable hour. He began a friendship and love with a woman named Mary. Rubber Soul by the Beatles was the album that they listened to often, and the song Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown, um, became the soundtrack to their relationship. That's beautiful. Yeah. It was in January of 1966, his birthday month. That he got a letter from the army informing him of his postponement into the draft. Phew. But wait, it's not over. He also (laughs) met a woman who would be in his life for a long time named Michelle. He really liked her and she was Chinese. At the end of his senior year, 1966 to 67, he was chosen to be the editor of the school paper. And I believe it was his involvement with academics that kept him out of the service for now. Yeah. On August 29th, 1966, he went to a Beatles concert. This was during the time um, that they were facing the backlash from John Lennon saying that the band was more popular than Jesus. So they didn't sell out the show that night. That's crazy. Yeah. So he gives a really interesting description of the of the band playing. I I think that they were pretty like upset with the crowd again just like not really listening and he says like he really did remember like george harrison's shoes and them making jokes about the crowd being rowdy but um it ended up being the last time that the beatles performed for money i gotcha yeah um ben was accepted to do a master's degree program and it was around this time that the draft intruded on his life again Three days after Christmas, he was ordered for induction once again. He got a confirmation date with the Army, January 25th, 1967. Jeez. My birthday. Yeah. But on the 24th, got a postponement. He had I know, right? He had many letters sent on his behalf, but he doesn't say if it was those that got him postponed again. It's like this ever-looming 
Shadow of death. That's right. Because in February, they called again. <sighs> because he didn't have enough jobs already. <laughs> he got a call asking if he'd like to write for a magazine called East West. And he said... He took it. Yes. And his parents ended up really liking this. And because writing is an honorable profession in Chinese culture, um, his parents were like cool with this. And the East-West was a good opportunity for him to keep current with what was happening in Chinatown and what was happening with Chinese people. And there was a lot of stuff happening, like more than I could even possibly get into or just like recite by heart because there were some real wild like tensions, gang stuff that was happening. Wow. Which ultimately led to the murder of his older brother no yeah oh my goodness yeah so we'll get into that um he ended up leaving the gator and it was around this time that he became like a disc jockey he says after college i was full tilt into hippie scene going to the matrix the fillmore the avalon collecting posters smoking marijuana and spending long hours staring into the fireplace and marching in a couple of anti-war protests Yeah. Yeah. He says um, he wasn't a hippie, though, himself. And his job as a DJ at KFOG was pretty easy listening. So I think he was mostly just, like, set to put on, like, Muzak and stuff. He wasn't choosing his own stuff yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. So his brother was a deputy probation officer, which was very similar to, like, a social worker. And so he was a really good guy and he really just wanted to like work with youth and help the just, people and just like really help people. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's. I and I'm going to like flop. Yeah. Like a little bit um, back and forth. But um, it was in 1967 that he got transferred from KFOG to a new radio station. And so the big thing happened. It was in 1967. So as – and this is why I'm sort of like adding his brother in here too is because as he was really starting to come into some things and his brother was getting on his feet with doing what he was doing is kind of when like – things started to happen with his brother yeah but it was in november of 1967 when his roommates came across a new publication it was a hybrid of a newspaper and a magazine yes it was called rolling stone yeah yeah he said it was a bracing find it was the kind of paper with the kind of freedom all of us at sf state were fighting for only it focused on almost exclusively on the hip rock scene tom and doug thought i as his roommates thought i should write for it but i didn't think rolling stone as much of a future i'd never considered myself a music critic or particularly knowledgeable about rock and rolling stone was nothing if not critical and knowing as well and knowing as well as hip humorous well-written and classically designed it didn't go the way of the underground papers crazed on psychedelic lettering and littered with mistakes it didn't take either rock and roll or itself too seriously its first subscription premium was a wood-handled roach clip and readers were advised 
to act now before this offer is made illegal. <laughs> Even in its raw first issues, 16 or 24 pages of black and white newsprint, Rolling Stone vibrated from one set of hands to another around our flat in Sacramento Street. When it got to mine, I lapped it up. This is what we were trying to do with the Gator. Solid classic journalism, but unafraid. Urgent, in fact, to be contemporary and to mess with the established rules and boundaries. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. He didn't think he was a fit at first. Yeah. So he goes on to say, I saw Rolling Stone's offices for the first time when I delivered my report. They were in a part of town unknown to most San Franciscans. It was sometimes referred to as South of Market, a region of warehouses, wholesale outlets, and heavy industry. Rolling Stone's founder, publisher, and editor, Jan Wenner, had scored free rent in a loft above a printing plant. But once you entered through the lobby and walked along the back wall up wooden steps to the loft, hot lead, ink, and gigantic rolls of paper weren't the prevailing smells in the air. <laughs> the magazine office was just across an alley from a slaughterhouse. No. That would explain the increasing popularity of incense around the offices. <laughs> Rolling Stone had a bare-bones staff, Jan, one other editor, an art director, and a secretary. I handed in my report, looked around a moment, and left. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So he ended up um, putting out a story that appeared in March, and then so he did some freelance stuff for them until he eventually just kind of walked into the offices one day, and Jan was just like, do what you think needs to be done. <laughs> That's awesome that uh, a woman, Jan... Nope. No, damn it. No, Jan's a man. And I will tell you about one of like the first women at Rolling Stone magazine okay. and what Jan had to think about that. Oh, no. But let's go back to the army for a second. Okay. He got a notice from the draft board again saying that he was fully acceptable for induction. So he found a copy of the U.S. Army's medical fitness standards and tried to find where he might fit into not being fit for induction. Yeah. So the night before he had to go in and see a doctor, he ended up coming up with something about like sinuses. And the night before he ended up going into the medical exam, um, he got like rip roaring drunk with his friends because he thought like the less fit I yeah. seem, the better. Yeah. There's so many stories like this. <laughs> and so he did end up having a sympathetic doctor who wrote him um, a note and like a, of the kind of infliction, like allergies or whatever, like sinuses that made him unable to serve. So when he actually met with the doctor at the army, um, the doctor like looked through his nostrils and had a look and uh, said, now, are you here for an entrance exam or are you requesting disqualification? And Ben was like, what? You can do that? <laughs> so he was like, um, I didn't know I had a choice. And so the ben, like, the doctor was like, so are you in or are you out? And he's like, yeah, no, I think I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so he was ordered for induction three times in 20 months. And he says, now in the spring of 1969, I was finally free. Thank goodness. Yeah. So he was splitting his time between jobs and doing freelance for Rolling Stone. He wrote about Gordon Lightfoot, CCR, Joni Mitchell. Like the stuff that he says about Joni Mitchell is like incredible. And the stuff about Laurel Canyon and um, yeah. Just really fascinating stuff. And then again, like if you get the other books and you want to read those actual yeah, interviews, sure. like they're all there for you. Um, he says that he was straddling the corporate and rock and roll still. Okay. And making between 20, 10 and $40 per story. 
And so there's a really interesting, you know, like story about how Rolling Stone came to be, what Jan originally like wanted for it. Um, but Rolling Stone, he said he came to see it um, as a valuable continuing education in journalism. And this is what he says about Jan. Jan Wenner was a short, hyperactive fireball of energy. He was 22 years old, exactly one year younger than I was. He had graduated from Cal, where he had covered the free speech movement and written a rock and roll column for the campus daily. So he basically just started getting a team of people together. Um, there was a name, a man named Charles Perry, who was one of Rolling Stone's first editors. Bob Kingsbury was the art director. Um, he was, he was a sculptor and Jan ended up convincing him to do like magazine design. And guess who the photographer was? Annie? Mm, I, nope. Tell me. Baron. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Baron so, so this is what Ben writes. Along with Jan and an elfin photographer oh. who shot everything from classic studio portraits of rock stars to an on-the-spot dope bust of the Grateful Dead, we made for one Motley crew. I forgot about Baron. Yeah. yeah he was there. Yeah. From the and, beginning. Um, so now, you. so he was there right at the beginning. I'm just so desperate for a woman to be there. So. Okay. Perfect timing. <laughs> okay. Because I wrote, you may be wondering, hey, that's a lot of men. Yeah. <laughs> well, guess what? You're right. It was actually Ben who brought in the first female staffer at Rolling Stone magazine. Fantastic. Her name was Amy Hill, and they met at a book party in North Beach. He says she wrote and produced Counterculture, uh, flavored commercials for KSAN, the dominant freeform progressive rock station in town. But once I learned of her writing talents, I convinced her to contribute to Rolling Stone. Cool. So... Not to get Jan in shit, mm. but he wasn't stoked about a woman joining the crew because he said, and I quote, women can't write. Oh my God. So Ben had Amy write something and he took her name off the byline and showed it to Jan. And, and he, he loved, loved it. it. <laughs> of course. At this point, Jan had told Ben that, yeah, he could go into the office, do whatever he wanted to do, and he said it was like a dream job, no more suits. In May of 1969, he was making $135 a week, which was significantly less than what he was making at the Pacific Telephone paper. So he took a leap of, of faith yeah. here, and he left that one kind of, excuse me, stable Safe. job for this rock and roll magazine. And within a month of being at Rolling Stone, he had a desk fitted into their loft. Cool. The magazine came out once every two weeks, and he describes it as the first intelligent rock and roll publication in the country. It's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, talk about a light bulb moment, seeing where there was a need, and they yeah, all just, like, filled it. For sure. Um, he took the title of news editor, but learned that the news was whatever interested them, and that titles were actually meaningless. Yeah. As in, everyone did everything. Yeah. They all wrote, they all edited, they all made assignments, pitches, headlines, and they all the contributed effort. to story ideas. Yeah. That's so cool. They'd have pretty informal meetings where they'd talk about what was going on, and they actually really relied on the British pop press. Oh, yeah? Well, I mean, the British pop press was always a thing, right? Like, yeah. I mean, the Beatles must have started that with the fan clubs and, like, For people sure. really wanting to know. So. so this makes me laugh because at the end of 1967, Jan wanted a year-end roundup of what had happened in, like, music that year. But something happened. One person was on holiday, and they didn't get out get it out until February twenty eighth of nineteen sixty eight. 
<laughs> so this makes me laugh because you and I had planned to do a year in Roundup yeah. and I ended up getting super sick and it just like it couldn't it just like didn't we can happen relate. so the thing is if we want to we can do our year in Roundup in February, in February because that's what they did over at Rolling Stone or we could just not do it or we could just do it privately or we could just express gratitude right now for such a wonderful year that we had it was so good I was excited to go over everything maybe we still will we'll see hey the opportunity hey, is there. If they did it, yeah. we can do it. So at this point, Ben was covering rock festivals, the Jefferson Airplane bust, the lawsuit of the Grateful Dead, and the first obit of a major star, Brian Jones. He says, unshackled from the corporate world, I dressed more casually than I had even in college. There, taking my role as editor too seriously, I often showed up at the newspaper office in a white shirt and a narrow tie. <laughs> With my horn-rimmed glasses and short hair, I looked like some engineering student who'd stumbled into the wrong place. Now, I took to blue um, work shirts and jeans. I switched to rimless glasses. I grew a mustache and let my hair grow, leaving it unwashed for days at a time. That's the Ben we all know. Once again, his parents were not pleased. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a pretty cute picture somewhere. And it's of um, the real Ben Fong Torres and the actor who played him in Rolling Stone. Aww. Yeah, it's really cute. Oh, yeah. Um, one night, Ben and Amy were coming home from a concert when she said to him, You know... This is an incredible time to be alive and doing what we're doing. It must almost be like living in Florence during the Renaissance. And here we are working at Rolling Stone. We see so shows for free. We get records in the mail. We get to interview famous people. Life is certainly interesting. That's great. And can I say the same thing about us? Yeah. What a time. What a time to be alive. It's exciting. She was doing interviews of her own at this point with Cheech and Chong, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and they were in kind of an open relationship because she was a free spirit. And it was 1969 or yeah. 1960 something at this point. Um, That's fab. Yeah. She said that matters at Rolling Stone did seep into his job at uh, East and West. For example, he was doing something at East West when he got a phone call from Joni Mitchell. And you don't say no to Joni. No, they had a really <laughs> nice conversation and it's a really, really cute exchange between the two of them. And she's talking about just getting a new tattoo on her wrist and what it was like traveling and yeah. Aww. Unfortunately, around this time, Ben was attacked by three young Asian men because there was a lot of tension happening. Um, basically, he had written an article like... Um, about uh killing of a young man uh and he associated it with the rise of gangs in chinatown apparently he had violated some kind of code of silence and was thus beaten up wow he's, yeah i guess he's lucky it was just yeah, yeah a scuffle yeah. he had began to work for another radio station at this point um at this point, he could actually play the music he liked on the air instead of just like the elevator oh, music fantastic. stuff. Mm -hmm. He ended up staying at KSAN for eight years. Wow. I had no idea that he was also a DJ. Yeah. So he played and did whatever he wanted. He even had Steve Martin on the show once. Cool. Mm -hmm. Nice. He says, I was riding high working at two of the standard bearers of the youth culture. Um, he was tracking around the country with stars of pop, rock, and R&B music and writing about them. Then on weekends, I could go on the most popular station in town and play radio. Yeah, it's just the best of both worlds there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Journalism, radio, yeah. writing, talking, like, sound familiar? Living links? the dream, yeah. Sound familiar? <laughs> I'm loving it. 
So by 1971, he says, delinquency was too clinical a word for what was happening in Chinatown. Things were really bad and people were getting killed on the streets. Barry took a new job working in a community group with youth, but it was a super dangerous and would ultimately lead to his death. Even though he was more of a social worker, he would be seen as an outsider and even like a cop to some of them. Mm, yeah. The job even paid less money than his previous job, but because he saw such a need, yeah. he really wanted to take it and he really wanted to help out. Ben writes, Barry rode brashly into the minefield that was Chinatown in 1971. Yeah. He was like, you know, the program like Big Brothers. Yeah. Like that's what he was doing. Um, like helping youth in distress. That's and so at sad. risk young people. Yeah. He says Barry felt he could reach the youth with whom he was working and that he knew what they were going through being ethnic minorities trying to gain an education and climbing the ladder while dealing with white society. Mm-hmm. So one night, um, Barry was at home with his girlfriend when the doorbell rang. He went to answer it and never returned because he was shot to death. Oh. That's heartbreaking. There was a witness who said that there was a man walking around nervously previously to the shooting and an envelope ended up being found beside Barry's body that said in capital letters, pig informers die young. No. Oh, God. Yeah. So you can really tell that this book is really a way for Ben to come to terms or like just to acknowledge or just get the story out and you know as a modality of healing as so many of these memoirs are for sure yeah around this time ben was working on an anthology of articles called the rolling stone rock and roll reader um and the book goes into detail about how the family was dealing with the grief and what they did to keep on living. He said that nine days after Barry's death, he returned to Rolling Stone, but he was only like half there. Yeah. Um, at this point, the magazine had been going on for about five years and it had moved to larger offices with a staff to, of about 40 people. That's crazy success. Mm-hmm. In yeah. five years. He said to some people that they seemed like the Manson family and that they were a family in a way and that they did have love affairs between them. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there's also a few broken hearts, some disownings, some runaways. Um, and at this point in their 20s, they had experienced um, the rock and roll deaths of people like Janice, Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix. Um, but for him, this was a first real personal loss. Hmm. Ben ended up doing an interview with Ray Charles and he began a love affair, a love affair with a woman named Diane who he would eventually marry. Oh. And to this day is his, like they no say married. Yeah. Um, he was also still kind of with Michelle, also still kind of with Mary. Like it's, there is some dating around there. Yeah. Um, he talks about seeing a very affecting Bob Dylan concert and um, at the beginning of his 21 City tour, he wrote two articles about him. And he did go on to like interview Dylan and there's a picture of him somewhere with Bob Dylan. It's just such a fantastic story. Um, he said that he really lost himself in Bob Dylan's music. I can relate. Yeah. For sure. Oh, losing yourself in yes. the Dylan? In the Dylan. Mm. Okay, I'm going to flip to page 237 here. And I don't remember why. I didn't give myself any <laughs> notes, but um Yeah, I think he just kind of made like a connection to his brother and to Bob Dylan. So he says it was the second night in Chicago I lost myself in his music and near the end of It's Alright Ma, I'm only bleeding, I took a direct hit to the heart. 
Aww. Yeah. As I wrote at the time, it wasn't so much the song, as great as it was in its simplicity, as it was the delivery. Dylan made a statement through a tone he was painting with his bitter truth voice, a feeling of knowing resignation, the uplift deriving from the knowledge that here was a guy who'd seen it all, saw through it all, and as Robbie Robertson of the band put it, had a way of phrasing it and condensing it down. Yeah. Yeah. So he really thought about Barry at this time. I can't imagine losing someone you know you're so close to like especially like that yeah so suddenly and so young in 1997 rolling stone announced plans to move to new york but and janwin had a lot of different other projects going on but ben wanted to stay and he did and he was always the west coast correspondent Mm-hmm. He says, I was fortunate in my last year at Rolling Stone. I'd expanded beyond music. My last couple of features at the magazine were on Steve Martin and Rod- Rodney Dangerfield. Previously, I'd profiled Diane Keaton. Having shown some range beyond rock and roll, I had no trouble getting work from several major magazines. And in 1982, he went to China for three weeks to do a documentary. And his tales from visiting his family there are like a really wonderful yeah. part of the story as well. So he wraps up his book really nicely with the trip, visiting his family, going back to the place place where um you know his father left his father's village uh family there that's cool and then, like he got to like retrace his yeah. family steps yeah and then uh he eventually did go back to the spot where his brother was killed and um you know had really nice interactions and conversations with people who knew his brother and old friends and lovers of his own and as well of just like coming to terms with family dynamics and especially his parents yeah and just like really like realizing like what they had done to come over and the opportunities that he and his family had or that you know he had self and like look what he did for himself yeah did he ever mention what his sister got up to yep um so his sisters were mostly um like they got married and yeah. they kept it a little bit more traditional. Yeah. And I believe his younger brother had some special, um, like some learning, like special abilities. And so he was more home, more of a homebody mm-hmm. and he had like learning difficulties and things. So I think he just like, it was the brother's responsibilities. Yeah. And they, they really took it on a role to pick him up and bring him out and bring him to the movies and things like that. So there was less pressure for the youngest son to gotcha because of that um but it's a really wonderful like did he have kids ben oh good question in everything that i've read about him i didn't see anything about children interesting yeah i love that he's still with his wife though yeah so this article i mean there's so many great ones in here and there's like there was oh there was one about emmy lou harris that he wrote and apparently there was a band that wrote a uh, a song about one of emmy lou's groupies so emmy lou having a groupie oh yeah and a groupie following emmy lou across like amazing yeah so groupies of the 80s still grabbing for the stars yeah So a few years into freelancing, I began writing for the San Francisco Chronicle on a regular basis, contributing mostly feature articles on a wide range of subjects. Understandably, I got a number of assignments that took advantage of my time at Rolling Stone. Here's a piece about groupies, a subject Rolling Stone first took on in 1969. Here in 1984. Had that much changed? Of course not, even with the advent of the AIDS crisis. The article makes use of interviews with current musicians and fans, but there was no way I couldn't make use of a trove of letters I'd received a few years before from Cynthia Bowman, who'd been my assistant at Rolling Stone, before she left to become a publicist for Jefferson Starship. 
cool. So it was a stack of letters that a guy named Spencer Dryden, the drummer of Jefferson Airplane, um, had written about groupies. But what I want to read here is um, what is a little bit of what he says about them. And he says, Ah, groupies. They rose as such a phenomenon in the late 60s that they warranted their own book and documentary album. Various of them became famous. The plaster casters, who as their name implies, made plaster molds of the genitalia of rock stars. The GTOs, or Girls Together Outrageously, sponsored by Frank Zappa as a fledgling performance unit. Yes. It's the spotlight, Dryden says, like the moth attracted to the flame. Um... So, uh, there was a woman named Sheila Ryan, um, who is a rock writer, that says, Groupies never died down. The press just stopped writing about it. Yes, for right? sure. For sure. That's what we always say, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most musicians would just as soon groupies never go away. After all, what is rock and roll if not electric sexual energy? There are artists who are sincere when they say the music comes first, but there are plenty with other priorities. <laughs> yeah. The allure um, is always there. Yeah. So he goes on to write, Frank Zappa, founding father of the Mother's Invention, says groupies helped his band's music. It's only when they weren't there that you had guys grumbling. Mm. It's that little present at the end of the night that was made rock and roll the greatest art form that America has to offer. <laughs> yes. And yeah, they talk a little bit about, um, you know, the male groupies and things like that and uh, how some women rock stars felt about that. But... Yeah, I mean, I just had to add that in that like, you know, Ben Fong Torres has acknowledged it, has written about it, has covered it. Yeah. He knows. Well, we're covering it now. Yeah. Yeah. Passing on the torch. And I just like, honestly, we really feel and I know you've mentioned this too, that a lot of our books and a lot of our stories, the ones that we're reading are really coming to us. Yeah. And who knows why Ben Fong Torres came into my mind as something that I thought would make for a really great podcast episode. And then as I'm reading it, just finding a lot of, you know, parallel things. And it's like, you know, if he knew what we were doing, he'd probably be like, cool, because that's we're doing the 1969 version of rock journalism and starting magazines and doing zines into this kind of like rock and roll podcast. And he was a DIYer. He was. To start with. He was. So... So many were pleasant as well. Yeah. Yeah. You got to you gotta shape it out for yourself, you know. Make exactly. your own little niche. And, yeah. and we're going to continue to do that in this new year. So um, yeah. just continue to curve to come on muses and stuff. Stay tuned for the next installation for the muses <laughs> on tour. Exactly. We're doing our own rock tour. Yes. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Until next time. Until next time. You can find us. That was fantastic, by the way. I'm so happy uh, we uh, got Ben in there because he certainly deserves it. Yeah. Oh, did I say that he only published three books? He published five. My goodness. Because he did do a biography of Graham Parsons. Yeah, I I have one of them. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to check out the rest of these. They all sound fantastic. Yeah. Check out the other two as well. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Of course. And as always, yeah, our humble listeners, you can find us on Instagram. 
Muses and Stuff podcast and yeah. on Facebook. Yeah. And Shanti and links on, on Twitter. Twitter. And uh, hopefully by this time we have tweeted Something. and retweeted yeah. and quoted tweets. We will and do that. Maybe posted some things. <laughs> maybe we could get our birthdays on there. Yeah, I would love to. I'm having a Twitter issue at the moment, but we'll get that fixed. Great. Okay, amazing. <laughs> so long, everybody. We'll see you next time. See ya. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.